0: Well, today I have a wonderful guest with us. And I must say, our guest, Martina Clark, also has her cat with her. So we get to periodically hear. Martina and I have been talking earlier already about uh, how her her cat will meow in the background. So we get to hear her cat's beautiful meow periodically through the the podcast interview. So just enjoy that. Just part of the ambiance. So let me explain a little bit about... Martina, and why I wanted her to be guest on Phoenix and Flame. Now, Martina was the first openly HIV positive person hired to work with UNAIDS in 1996. She subsequently worked for the United Nations system for twenty years, advocating globally for the rights of people living with HIV. Her collaborative work also led to a mandatory HIV in the workplace program internal to the United Nations system, facilitating platforms for freer dialogue and a more supportive environment for all personnel, including LGBTQ, persons with disabilities, and other marginalized populations. Martina holds a Bachelor of Arts in International Relations and a Master's of Fine Arts in Creative Writing and Literature. Currently, she's an adjunct for LaGuardia Community College, where she teaches English 101 and critical reading to New York City public high school students, earning early college credits. Her award-winning debut book, My Unexpected Life, an international memoir of two pandemics, HIV and COVID-19, was published in October 2021. Martina Clark, welcome to Phoenix and Flame.
1: Thank you so much, Sanga, and I are delighted to be here.
0: <laughs> Thank you for sharing her name, Sanga. Yes, we will hear from her periodically, and we will enjoy her melodious uh, meowing in the background. This is, we need to, you know, be inclusive and. That's one of the things I love about my podcast is just, we're just real. This is real life. And we say the real things and the real truths. And I'm not interested in, in polished things. I'm interested in, in reality. So Sanja is absolutely welcome (laughs) on Phoenix and Flame. Thank you. (laughs) Well, you know, I was really intrigued by your background and your experience being an HIV positive person. I am 55, so I remember when a lot of this stuff came on the scene, and I'm really just kind of curious as to what your journey was like, what what that experience was like for you.
1: Whew. Yeah. So I tested positive for HIV in 1992. I was 28 years old, and two things were critical at that moment besides, obviously, the Uh, the shock of such a diagnosis. Um, One, we didn't have treatment yet. So there was a perception, not incorrectly, there was a perception that this was a death sentence. So it wasn't sort of like you have this thing and now you have to go into treatment for it and it's going to be X number weeks of whatever. It was, you probably have five years to live. We don't really know. And the other thing was that I had never seen a woman with HIV. I probably had but I did not know that I had. Mm. And I lived in San Francisco, in the San Francisco Bay Area at the time, which was a very, very, very welcome and wonderful city and was responding extraordinarily well as best they could to the AIDS crisis. However, there were no services for women, or very few. They were sort of starting to trickle in. So uh, because I had the sense that I was going to be dead in five years, if I was lucky, five years, maybe less. I became an activist. I had a wonderful caseworker who almost immediately put me in touch with a woman named Rebecca Denison, who had started an organization called WORLD, which stands for Women Organized to Respond to Life-Threatening Disease, because she too was an HIV-positive woman who needed to find a community, and she couldn't find it, so she created it. Thanks to her, I found other women living with HIV. Sort of together, we forged ahead and found that there were some gaps that needed to be filled that were issues that gay men weren't dealing with. For example, if you wanted to be in a research study, they didn't provide childcare. A lot of women have kids. Less men then, in particular, um, had children. So things like that, we became involved in trying to create... A world that would accommodate us as women living with HIV. Rather than sort of sitting in a corner thinking, this is it, my life is over, and I'm just going to feel sorry for myself, I decided this is it, maybe my life is over, but I'm going to try and make it count. Because I thought even if I couldn't change it, maybe somebody else could benefit from my experience.
0: Wow. And that is That is so amazing and admirable because I'm listening to you describe that and I'm trying to put myself in your shoes and imagining what that would have felt like to be 28 and feel like this is it. You know, if I'm lucky, I have five more years. I thought I had decades I thought I had, I had this, you know, I don't know if you had a big plan, you know, some people have all these big long plans for their lives and other people just kind of live in the moment, you know, just, it kind of depends on the personality, but I was just kind of wanting to hover over that for just a moment. And what mm-hmm. that experience was like for you, I know you said that ultimately you became an advocate, advocate and decided, okay, I'm going to try to be, you know, make the most of this, but it's just like, oh my gosh, to be 28 and to be facing that.
1: So I can tell you that, for example, the actual moment when I was given the news, I happened to be house sitting, which is irrelevant, but I was standing in a kitchen and I felt like my life had just been erased. And I was standing sort of looking at a a cabinet door, you know, it was white cabinet door. And that's exactly how I felt was my life has just been erased. Everything that has happened up until this point, It doesn't matter anymore. It's done. And, and not in a good way, kind of like you get a do-over sort of like, Nope, that doesn't count. Your whole life is, is now this new thing. And recently I was visiting my family in California and my niece, one of my nieces, I have many happens to be the niece who's named after me. She's the same age as I was then. And she's now married. She lives in Europe. She has a child and I I haven't had this feeling in a long time, but I was watching her, both feeling delighted for her, and a tiny, tiny bit, like, that's what my life was supposed to have been. And it didn't work out that way, to be sure. I'm 58 now. I have had an extraordinary life. It all worked out the way it was supposed to. But I was sort of brought back into that moment of seeing, ah, that's sort of what I thought I was going to be headed towards. Mm-hmm. And it all just changed in an instant. Wow. Yeah.
0: And I, and I think that is so inspirational, too, for people that are listening that may or may not be facing something like what you're describing because they might be having that feeling that that they are erased, that they their life, what they have lived up to that point, everything is just going to be erased. But you don't know what's going to happen yeah. moving forward and everything kind of plays out in different manners. I was also kind of wondering at that time, because I, like I said, I remember when all of this came out in the news and everything, how were you handling the societal, the the community's attitude about HIV because we're so much more. I I want to say, in in some on some level, some people might laugh at me, but I want to say I want to feel that we're more enlightened now. I guess in some ways we are, in some ways we're not. People could argue either way, but at least on HIV we have so much more education now. We understand what exactly is going on. We, under, we have more, medic, you know, the medication on, in place and this kind of thing. We, more people stood up, like Magic Johnson, I think, and other people stood up and spoke and, and stood in their, in their space. But at the time, that was before all of that. Yeah.
1: I, I, I was just talking to some friends um, last night. I'm in a, a writer's group of long-term survivors, So we're all people who have had HIV. I think I'm probably the youngest in the group. I'm 58, and I've had HIV for about 31 years now. So these are people who are a little bit older and have had HIV even longer. I was remembering a moment, probably a year after my diagnosis, where I was with my family, and another family member had been diagnosed with, I think, breast cancer, which, of course, is not a great thing. But I kind of lost my cool (laughs) because I said, why is it that we can sit here and talk about her, but nobody will talk about me? It was a very self-centered reaction in the moment. But that sort of sums up how things were. It was sort of, if I was being an activist and I was doing things, that was admirable and we could talk about that. But certainly in my family, my My mom, I would say in particular, it was a topic she really did not want anybody else to know about. And that was the hardest part because in my own world, I was starting to make friends who had HIV. I had a group of friends who were very, um, very, very open-minded and we had lots of gay friends. And so HIV was not new in our world. And the few friends that I sort of lost on that path probably just as well. They weren't really good friends at the beginning. I hadn't realized, but now I knew. Now you knew. Now I knew, but it's still the, the societal stigmas were definitely for me mm-hmm. worse than the actual manifestation of the illness because I was extraordinarily lucky. I didn't even need to take treatment for 17 years. That wow. is not the norm, but all along on that path, For example, uh, in my work with the United Nations, I would go and do trainings in country offices or even in New York City offices or Geneva, it doesn't matter, any office. And I could see a shift where I showed up as the expert from the office in Geneva or New York. And the minute I disclosed, I suddenly became that person with HIV. And the whole room, you could just feel it change in the way people looked at me and... Mm. Sometimes in a good way, because it would be like, oh, wow, look at that. She also has HIV. Maybe I can talk about it myself. Or it could be, this is amazing. This person has come forward and presented an image that we don't see in the media. And for the listeners who can't see me, I am a, I'm now middle-aged, but I'm a white woman, as white as they come. <laughs> and I was definitely not um, what was on the campaign posters. I was not the starving person in Africa. I was not a gay man. I was I was none of the the stereotypes. And so, which also gave me much that much more motivation to do this because I wanted to break those stereotypes and say, this, you know, these stereotypes are ridiculous. They don't matter at all. The virus infects a human body. It does not care what you look like or where you came from. But I still felt it. And I even a little bit today, I feel like we still have the the remnants of that. And science has made extraordinary progress. I am in a place now where I take one pill a day. I have no side effects from it. I have a, you know, normal life prognosis that I should expect to live a long time. And I have to prepare for that at this point. And people who test positive today also have that advantage that they can start treatment as soon as they need it. And Yes, it will change your life forever, but it is not what it was in the early 90s or in the 80s. Um, but the stigma is still there. And I think the stigma is why people don't get tested and why they don't necessarily uh, feel comfortable to have conversations around sex, which might help them avoid getting infected in the first place.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I'm thinking back when it was such a, a new thing. And people didn't know. I can remember, they almost felt like it was contagious. I felt so for the people because it's almost like you felt like you had to walk around with a sign that says unclean or something. Because people would like thought that something was going to jump on them or something or that, you know, and, and they would keep their kids away. Yeah. Don't Don't use a toilet seat if someone... With HIV has been there because you could get it could get I mean this was before the education of it all but right. this was real this was the and and this was the reality of what was going on in society when you were diagnosed with HIV.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Like I said, there there are little remnants of it here and there, but nothing like it was in the eighties and nineties. Nothing at all. It has all changed dramatically for the better.
0: Let me ask you this: I am really. Um, a strong encourager of of conversations, of being open and being honest and being transparent. And being a psychotherapist, I am able to kind of train and and educate and encourage my patients to have these conversations. I'm kind of wondering from your experience, from what you've gone through personally and also experiencing with different types of communities and different countries and this type of thing, what would be your suggestion or your words of wisdom on how to encourage people, maybe a listener that's listening now that feels like they have some kind of stigmata about them, whatever it may be. Okay. There's always something for Mm -hmm. some, there's always, society always has to have something that they want to, you know, some kind of stigmata to put on somebody what is your words of wisdom? If if there is a listener that is experiencing that and they're, they're really wanting that connection. They're wanting some conversation. They're wanting that encouragement of how to do that, but they're sort of stuck because they feel just, yes, yes, exactly. I think,
1: um, this is easy to say as I sit here in a place like New York or having been diagnosed in San Francisco. Um, but I think that, if you can find it, the best thing is to find a group of other people who are dealing with the same thing. I was actually sort of resistant to support groups early on, but at the same time, I was sort of shoved into them and it was incredibly reassuring to know I was not the only person. That was sort of step number one. It's like, okay, this sucks, but I am not the only one. And if you can meet other people who have been dealing with the same issue, then they can also share how they have dealt with that issue and give some sort of pointers. I tried this. It didn't work. Don't do it. I tried this and it actually did work. I recommend it. Or maybe you can find something in between. And it's a way that you are in community with other people with shared experiences. For me, that was the most validating thing is to meet other people, women and men with HIV and know that I was not alone, I was not the freak that I thought I was. <laughs> That's really important because I think when you're first diagnosed with something, it is new in your world, it shatters your universe, and you can't imagine that anyone else, else has ever been through this experience. I am not a psychoanalyst. I don't know if there's a, a reason behind that, but I have heard this you know, repeatedly from people that that is sort of their experience. And so one way to put that back together is to find other people and to see that they are living the same truth, the same reality that you are and identify little pieces that you can sort of pull into your own world and say, okay, I can do this. I can do that. I'm not going to do that because that's not going to work for me, but I can do these things. I think that's it. And I think that much as I hated all of this COVID stuff, I, I'm sorry uh, for everybody going through COVID. I had COVID (laughs) early on and I'm still (laughs) dealing with it. So I, lots of sympathy, but the good part of it is it has sort of amped up our ability to reach out to people through the internet. So even if there's not a group in your town, Mm -hmm. there might be a group online And I think that it's um, a siren in the background (laughs) because I live in New York City.
0: Um, No
1: problem. But I think that that's that's invaluable. And I don't think I appreciated it as much at the time when I was going through my diagnosis, but that's what kept me alive. As I've reflected back over the years, And I see that still today I have like one of the people in my writing group is one of the first women I met with HIV 30 years ago. And we had actually lost contact just because life goes in different directions. Mm -hmm. These people are still my community. And I know a gazillion people from a gazillion different parts of my life. But there are no other people except that community who just get it when we talk about certain issues that are shared experiences.
0: That That's made wonderful. a huge difference for me. Yeah, I can totally see how that would. As I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking once someone has a, a group, which mm-hmm. they absolutely need to have, to have that support and have that, like you said, that understanding that I'm not alone. There right. are other people and we can do this together. Because I, I've been called the queen of boundaries because I, I see <laughs> – I see boundaries, and every—I mean, everywhere I—I I, I look. But you know, we're in situations where, no matter what the situation is, on some level, we're wanting someone else to accept and approve and understand mm-hmm. our stance or our situation. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that happens, but sometimes it does not. Mm-hmm. And setting a boundary is really just. Having that grace to own your experience and understanding that someone else, their thoughts, their feelings about it, their opinions about it might not be what you like. They're entitled to those things. But if we're waiting around for other people to accept and understand what we're doing and why, yeah, then we're going to be kind of stuck Yeah. But if we can get to a point where we accept our experience and we own it and we're this is mine and I understand that you don't understand it or you don't approve of it or you don't accept it and that's okay, and you let that go.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Agree. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's really important, I think, to um, to sort of sit with whatever it is. And like for my for HIV, I. Absolutely. Would rather not have HIV. But I very quickly sort of accepted that this is what it is. And I just have to adapt who I am around this new reality and move forward. And I think, as you say, you know, you sort of own it, you take it and. And know this is also really hard to do in the beginning. As I described, I felt like my whole life had been erased It hadn't, of course. I was still exactly the same person that I was before I found out I had HIV. But it takes a little bit of time to reconnect those threads and realize I'm still exactly the same person. And now I have this new added feature. And if somebody else doesn't like the new added feature, well, too bad the old version of me is gone. You don't get to go back to that. I don't get to go back to that. But you could also just embrace this new involved version of me, which is equally fabulous.
0: Mm-hmm. It
1: takes a while to get there, but it's a reasonable thing to believe.
0: And I like the fact that you were, you know, you're, uh, you were owning that. And, and I'm, seems like I heard you say earlier about there were some friends that you realized maybe weren't true friends, because I'm imagining there might be listeners out there that are experiencing some kind of Issue that they feel like makes them other, right? To use your word. And you know, they're they're wanting to have acceptance and they're wanting people to approve, and that doesn't always happen. And sometimes, you know, you have your people, and then you have to let go of those that are just not going to accept it. It's just let that go. Let those people go. Yeah. You know. And,
1: And I think the thing also is to remember that. Um, Like if I I look back and I think of some of those people in my life, I would almost put money, I, I am not a betting woman, but I would almost put money that if I could have a conversation with them now, it would come to a point where we would realize it was them. It was something in them that made them afraid. They were afraid maybe this could happen to them too. Or it was too scary. Or they just it just opened up a flood of emotions that they couldn't handle. And the easiest thing was to just shut me off. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that would be the case in just about every relationship. Um, I am not going to go back because I'm not going to worry about those people now, but I realize that now that if somebody can't handle something that I share with them about my, my life, it's their issue. It's not my issue. And that's really, really important is to not feel like, oh, these people are rejecting me because it's me. It's something in them that is blocking them. Mm -hmm. And so hard as that is, because it hurts. It's, you know, always hurts when you're rejected. But know that it's them working through something and they just don't have the bandwidth to sort it out in a convenient, comfortable way
0: for everybody. That's a beautiful way of putting that. And so I really want to encourage, you know, listeners, if you're, If you're out there and and you're going through something like, you know, that Martina is describing, and there's someone in your life that just doesn't have the bandwidth to handle what you're trying to share, what you're trying to reveal about yourself, just don't, that's their issue. Let them have their issue. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It does hurt. It is disappointing, um, can be upsetting, but you have a right to be who you are. And if someone else doesn't have the bandwidth, you can't give it to them. Right. Right. Your priority is yourself. Mm-hmm. First
1: and foremost, you can't give what you don't have. You have to take care of yourself. And if they come back at some point and say, hey, can we have another conversation about this? And if you feel comfortable, fine. But you you are your priority. I think that was the biggest lesson that I learned was that I had to be my first priority. I was not good at that. I was not trained to do that. I was trained to take care of everybody else.
0: Mm.
1: And I still, I'm still working on that even today. But I know that if I don't have myself in order, if I haven't replenished my own resources, then I have nothing to give to help anybody else. So I have to, um, I have to value myself first. And that's not a selfish, egotistical, awful. That's just a smart, good prioritizing move.
0: Oh, that's 100%. I mean, I'm totally on board with you, Martina. I, I've said to my patients before, it's like there's only one person on this planet that has been given the responsibility of keeping you together, just exactly. one. <laughs> and so if if you abdicate, if you give up on that, then yeah. the wheels are going to get really wobbly and fall off, and, and that's <laughs> nobody else's responsibility. Yep. You know, I was going to ask you too, you had mentioned in your your bio information about surviving an abusive marriage and also fostering a teenage daughter. Would you care to share a little about your experience in those two areas? Sure. So
1: I had achieved a certain amount of success professionally. And this is when I I had been working with UNAIDS. And I guess this is only five years into the diagnosis, which... In retrospect, it seems like no amount of time whatsoever. But because I didn't know, you know, that that five years, I thought I was going to be dead and here I wasn't. And so life continued to move forward. I desperately wanted to be in a relationship because I felt like that was the main thing where I felt broken. I felt dirty. I felt like nobody was ever going to love me. And I wanted the relationship sort of for all the wrong reasons. I wanted it to fix me. And so I got into a relationship with somebody who was also not in great shape and was very sort of emotionally and verbally abusive. Luckily, not physically abusive, although I think sometimes none of it is good, but sometimes, you know, the bruises will heal, Mm -hmm. the emotions last, and nobody else can see them, so they're harder to deal with. And the person that I ended up marrying in way too short amount of time, uh, it turned out that he had borderline personality disorder. To his credit, he had no idea. Um, and I should have seen signs, but I was sort of desperate. And I just, you know, he's an attractive person. He was funny. He There were all of these other things that were delightful, but he had a very serious mental illness. And he had been not been diagnosed with it. And so he struggled watching me with this officially terrible thing, HIV, that he knew about, still managing to function and keep our little unit going and getting work and taking care of everything and paying all the bills. And I think that actually exasperated his problems, if maybe, that he felt that much more, um, and as a man, He had been sort of conditioned that he was supposed to do all these things and he couldn't do them because his brain wasn't allowing him. Um, And so we had a very volatile, unpleasant, and sexless relationship. I just assumed that was because of me, because I had HIV. And like, how dare I? I was so lucky to get married. How could I demand more in a relationship? Mm -hmm. Even hearing myself say these things, I roll my eyes. But at the time, I was just sort of trying to cope with all of it. Soon, he realized that I was not broken and I didn't need to be fixed, which is, I think, what his goal was, was to find somebody who was in worse shape than he was, kind of. And so a young woman who had been his neighbor needed to be placed somewhere else. So it wasn't a regular foster system situation where we volunteered This was a child in our world who needed a safe place to live. I'll leave it at that. Um, But we had only been married for six months or something when she became our foster child. And she was 15. She wasn't this little tiny thing. She was, you know, uh, a budding adult. She had gone through a really horrific situation. And so the focus became her, which took the focus off of me not needing to be fixed and the focus off of him who did need it to be fixed, but didn't want to deal with it. So we became foster parents for about a year. And I would not recommend that in a new marriage. (laughs) I would not recommend that scenario. But of course, you know, when it's a troubled teen, you know, you don't say, gosh, could you come back in a year or two? I, you know, you step up. And so we stepped up and in the end, she's extraordinary. And we are still very, very, very close. And she now has two kids of her own and she's actually in a very healthy, good relationship. So she's been okay. And to my ex-husband's credit, about five years after we parted ways, he actually called me up and said that he had been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and he said i know it doesn't excuse any of my behavior but maybe it explains it mm. which is the kindest most extraordinary gift that he could have given me i have no desire to get back get back yeah. together with him and i wish him well in his life but it made it gave me the opportunity to digest the information with with new filters and realize that when he blamed me for things, it was probably just deflecting because he couldn't handle it himself or I don't even know what, you know, I I haven't spent that much time trying to reanalyze the whole, the whole marriage, but it made me realize that I certainly had a role in the dysfunction of our marriage because I didn't know how to fix myself either, but I wasn't the only problem and that was a huge gift. So I have moved on from that learned from that lesson um, and now I'm in a relationship we've been together ten and a half years and and he's a lovely lovely person
0: wow. <laughs> we can
1: have these conversations when something gets weird uh, or uncomfortable we can just talk about it and get mm-hmm. through it and that makes all the difference the communication um, and he has also been through his things in life as everybody everybody has something that they've been through so we sort of we sort of share those uncomfortable growing experiences as a common thing that we've both been through stuff rather than dwelling on, um, oh, you did this or you did that or whatever. We sort of like, okay, we've both been through a lot. We can get through this, whatever it is.
0: Wow. And I like the way you emphasize your current relationship and your ability to communicate That is such a huge thing that you, I mean, you can, you can get through virtually anything if, if you have a safe place where you can come to one another and speak your words and share your feelings, even if, and especially when you're kind of scared to, because you really don't know how the other person is going to receive what you're getting ready to share. And if you can go back and forth with that and yeah provide that safe place where you both feel comfortable saying those things because you might as well spit it out because it's going to be in your mind, whether or not you attach words to it or not, it's still in your mind.
1: Exactly. And, and from my experience, it's worse when it's just in your mind. It's so much better when you just get it out. All right. boop. There's the thing. Let's Uh look at it. Let's talk about it. It doesn't like morph into some other strange thing. If it just, if you get it out. If he stays in your mind, it becomes seventy three other th- horrible scenarios. Whereas, just deal with it. Um, it's uncomfortable, but in the end, it's so much better. And then you also, as a couple, you have the like, a little stack of accomplishments together. You know, and I think that is also. It's comforting, at least for me, and reassuring that, yeah, we got through this thing.
0: Mm-hmm. That's it. We're a good well, team. Wh- Martina, you have you've been through so much, and wow, I mean, you are legit. You you have a definite (laughs) you have street cred uh, in (laughs) in terms of you know things that you have had to face and deal with and and find a way to move on in life. And it's just like you couldn't just put it to the side. I mean, it was within you. I mean, you had to you just you had to choose, and you did make a choice. You could have just like played the victim or felt like you were just the victim mm-hmm. identified as that you could have. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anybody would have blamed you necessarily had you done that, mm-hmm. but you chose not to do that. And so, and you've experienced all these different things along the way and the choices that you've made have caused you to end up where you are in your life right now. And, and all of that you've been able to to help people and to reach out and to communicate your, your experience and your wisdom. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So before I let you go, now where is it that my listeners can get more about you? If they want to hear more of your story, if they want to get access to your stuff, where do they go? So the easiest is my website, which is
1: martina-clark.com. So there's a little dash between Martina and Clark, but I think you could probably Google martinaclark.com and it would might come up. Um, And there you will find uh, I have a blog where I write about things. There are links to other published pieces. There are links to buy the book, which is just this two weeks ago, not even two weeks ago, last week, came out as an audiobook. And I narrated it myself and my partner, who I just mentioned, is uh, conveniently a musician and we have a full studio in our basement <laughs> for my 50th birthday he built me a sound booth for singing so we use that to record the the audiobook
0: oh, wow. um, so,
1: yeah so it's again a team team effort <laughs> so um, that's available and there you can also find links to um, Instagram and Facebook and everything and, and in Instagram I will highlight. Uh, every Saturday I post a picture of my cat for Catterday so you can see Sangha who you
0: may have heard in the background. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That'd be worth it just for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Martina, thank you. Thank You've you. have been a blessing. So much, You've been a blessing and uh, full of wisdom for my listeners and I'm I'm certain that they're gonna have something they can carry away. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dana. Appreciate it. And the listeners. I know that you have heard so much today that you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is so incredibly helpful. And you know what? I know you're thinking, I have a friend or I have a coworker or I have a relative that really, really could use what Martina has to share. So take this episode and share it on your favorite social media sites, or you can uh, copy and paste the link in text and email, however you want to do it to get the episode out there, get Martina's information out there. And again, go to martina-clark.com to get more information about Martina's life and her experience. And if you also want to get any more information about boundaries, you can go to danaskaggs.com slash join and get some information about a, an online boundaries course that I'm that I'm going to be producing and putting together and all kinds of fun stuff there. So I hope you've had a wonderful day and I hope the rest of your day goes great. This is Dana on Phoenix and Flame.